0: It is a sobering and indeed awful scene that greets us today in this portion of Scripture. We will be seeing men driven by blind, sinful pride to seal their own eternal doom. We remind ourselves, Heavenly Father, that we are hewn from the same quarry as they, so we dare not imagine that they have nothing to teach us. Teach us today, our Lord, the eternal truths we must learn. Allow none of us to evade the sword of the Spirit today, as the Holy Spirit would admonish us and strengthen us, encourage us, and direct us through your holy, inerrant, living Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here with this passage, we begin the third and climactic cycle of three cycles of rejection in Matthew chapters 11 and 12. Remember, we've seen how Matthew uh, varies between a, a portion of narration and a portion of discourse, a portion of narration, a portion of discourse. And this is the close of another narration portion, divided into three parts, each of them showing a rejection of Jesus Christ, troubled responses to Jesus Christ. And each of the three parts is subdivided into three parts. The first two in each section show a troubling response, beginning with John's struggling with who Christ is and the way things are going, climaxing with this, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and its aftermath. And yet, with those first two parts of each, there's a third part in which we see the invitation of God. Uh, In the first part, we see John troubled in chapter 11. We see the cities rejecting the preaching of the apostles. And then we see Christ saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. In chapter 12, we begin uh, with a couple of Sabbath clashes, a clash over eating, a clash over healing. And then we see that it's the servant of God's ministry under the Holy Spirit to bring God's Word, to bring justice to the Gentiles, and that the Gentiles would come to hope in Him. So now, as I say, we begin the third and final cycle of rejection. And in this portion, the Jews cross the Rubicon the dies cast, they come to the point at which we see the heart of the rejection of the nation towards Jesus Christ, and we see a pivot in his own ministry. So today we're going to go through the whole section, and then I'll come back and look at parts of it more closely, but it's important that we see all of it and how all of it flows. And it features, as the title of the sermon plainly says, The Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit. A more frivolous title would be When Israel Jumped the Shark or Began Jumping the Shark. But it it began with the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So let's look then first, Roman numeral 1, at the blasphemy committed in verses 22 through 24. And that comes to us in three parts. And first we have, letter A, the incident itself. And it's a happy incident. It's a a good thing. It's a glad and glorious thing, yet it becomes uh, an incitement to Israel to a, a statement of great iniquity or the leaders of Israel. So first the incident, then in verse 32, "...then was brought to him a demonized man, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw." Now, not all illness is demonic, but demons are capable of producing illness. They're capable of having physical causes, as we see a few times in the gospel. And this is one of those cases, apparently, where his possession resulted in him being unable to speak and unable to see. So we see that he healed him. What happened when he healed him? Well, we have a picture of Jesus Destroying the devil and his works, right? Because the effect is that he was unable to see, unable to speak, but when Jesus healed him, he was able to speak and to see. And why is that? Because Jesus cast out the demon that caused these physical ailments. So Jesus overcame Satan, he overcame both him and his works he sent his agent scampering and with him the awful effects that he'd worked in this man's life. This is going to be very, very significant, so we need to note it. Uh, It's a simple incident. It's not uncommon for Jesus. This is what he was doing through his ministry. Uh, Matthew had said this is what he went to do after the Jews held counsel as to how to destroy him. He went on preaching, teaching, and healing as the crowds followed him. And so this is just one such incident of many such incidents. But this one, as we will see, becomes pivotal in his ministry and in a very sad way in the history of the nation of Israel. His good deed incites his enemies to respond in a very evil way. And and, uh, their evil response is caused by the response of the crowds to his miracle. He does this miracle, and the crowd's response is what incites the Pharisees. So then let's look at that incitement in verse uh, 23, I-N-C-I-T-E-M-E-N-T, their incitement. The way they responded incited the Pharisees to great iniquity. So we read in verse 23, and all the crowds kept being astounded, and they kept saying, "'Can this man be the son of David?' Now we have to remember the larger backdrop I mentioned just a moment ago in verse 15 that after they took counsel as to how to destroy him and many crowds followed him and he healed them all. He healed them all. There was as usual many, there were as usual many incidents of healing, but this is just one that Matthew singles out because of the responses that it provoked. And those are given in verse 23 in two imperfect verbs. Uh, I don't mean that the verbs weren't, weren't quite right, but imperfect is a tense in Greek, uh, denoting an action in the past that is continual. It might be repeated, it might be ongoing, but it's viewed as being in process. So I, I somewhat over-translate it, you could say, but just to bring that out, by saying that they kept being astounded and they kept saying. So this is something that continually happened or happened over and over. As Jesus was doing these miracles, they were astounded. They, they were, the, the, the word means they were besides themselves. They they're out of their right mind. It just absolutely blew their minds as what they were saying. And what did they make of it? Well, they kept saying, can this man be the son of David? Now, the way this is phrased in Greek... They're not saying he is, they're not saying he isn't. It's a hesitant wording. Can can he possibly be the son of David? Is it just possible that this man Jesus actually is the son of David? And the son of David is one of the titles for whom? The Messiah. So they're saying, can he possibly be the Christ? Can he possibly be the Messiah? God's servant, we just were reminded about earlier in the chapter. Can they be that one? The one Israel's been looking for and, and formally at least longing for and praying for all these long centuries. Can, can this be him? Is it possible he's actually come in this man, Jesus? Well, there's no harm in their wondering, is it? I mean, can you blame them for wondering? How upsetting can it be that they wonder these things? Well, to the Pharisees, it's very, very upsetting. And no, it's not okay that they're wondering. In fact, they must not even raise that question. When it becomes known to the Pharisees that not just once but over and over, the people are wondering about whether maybe Christ might, Jesus might be the Christ, might be the Messiah, well... They have no choice as they see it, but to put an end to that. They have got to put a cork on that bottle. They have got to put a stop to that. Now remember, I pointed out earlier when it says they took counsel together as how to destroy Jesus, how might Jesus be destroyed. It may not be at that time that they were specifically thinking about killing him, but the effect was they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him to stop being a problem. They wanted him to stop causing the misery. They wanted him to stop making them look so bad. That just needed to stop. And so, here it is: people wondering if he might be the Christ, and they have to do something. They think, but what they do, very sadly, is iniquity. Let her see. It is iniquity. I n i q u i t y. Iniquity. But the Pharisees, when they heard, said, well, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, ruler of the demons." That is their big answer. They had to get on top of this spreading speculation, this stir. They had to do it fast to their mind. And no, as a matter of fact, the people could not be allowed to speculate or think this through for themselves. Their only option was to destroy this whole thing by a massive show of force, by emptying all magazines, clearing all the tubes, a total mag dump, total dump of all the ammunition that they have. And that just reflects their attitude towards the common people, which was contemptuous. Very much like the celebrity culture of today, which has its own laws and its own rules and very different laws and rules for us, the commoners. So then they had that same attitude. We see in in John chapter 7, John... Chapter 7, they send out guards to shut Jesus up, and the guards come back, and they say in John 7:46, no one ever spoke like this man spoke. And the Pharisees respond with absolute contempt. And they say in verses 47 through 49, have you also been led astray? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed, now hear that question. Have any of the Pharisees or the rulers believed in him? What does that reflect? Celebrity culture. Elitism. Have any of the top men believed in him? Well, no. The top men have not believed in him. Just this Am Haaretz, this people of the land, the rabble, the commoners, they believe in him. They, they are caught up by misinformation. And so we will just put them in Facebook jail, and turn ourselves, Twitter jail, and turn ourselves to the real work of truth that we're so well dedicated to. Yes, this is their attitude. And so, because they had gone on record increasingly as opposing Jesus, well, to their minds, they had no other choice than to stop the speculation in the most violent, um, decisive way possible. Well, they... You say, well, why didn't they just deny the miracles? I never tire of pointing out to you they couldn't. See, they're just like the the, uh, charismatic ministries today, except the opposite. Today, it's only people who want to believe that those are miracles that believe that they're doing miracles. Back then, it was the exact opposite. (laughs) The people, they, they would have loved to believe that they weren't miracles. They would have loved to have been able to say, oh, no, that's psychosomatic, or, or that's, that, that's just, you know, a sleight of hand, that's just a, a, a visual misrepresentation. No, but they couldn't say any of that. Dead people ra- rising, lepers being cleansed before people's eyes, twisted, useless limbs being given health, uh, on and on and on. No, no, they couldn't deny the miracles. So they had to come up with an alternative explanation for what the miracles were, and this is what the brain trust came up with, because there, there was no third option. Uh, they couldn't deny the miracles, but they had to deny Jesus. There was no third option, right? Well, no, there was a third option, wasn't there? What was the third option? They could have believed in Jesus. They could have looked at the signs, see what they pointed to, and made the conclusion that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Messiah. Oh, but you see, to pride that is not an option. Uh, At Pyromaniacs, I have a list of Philip's axioms. There's 50 some odd of them, but the one I think of most often is, is Philip's axiom two, which says when you do something sinful or really stupid, you only have two choices. You can own up to it and make it right, or you can double down and keep digging. And most people do the latter. Most people do the latter. They do the latter. They've said and taken a really stupid position. And rather than owning up to it, repenting of it, admitting they'd made a horrible mistake, well, then they make a worse mistake. They make a more horrible mistake. They say that what he does, he does by the power of Satan. That this work of the Spirit of God in Jesus is really not the work of the Spirit of God, it's the work of the Prince of Darkness. It's the work of the Lord of the Flies, of Beelzebub. So now let's look at the blasphemy because Jesus responds to it. And we see the blasphemy crushed in verses 25 through 29. And it is crushed first for its sheer absurdity. It is, it is absurd. And Jesus crushes it as such. So verses 25 through 27, uh, ironic beginning, and knowing their ponderings, how did he know their ponderings? How did he know what they were thinking? Because he was God incarnate, the very thing that they're denying. And so because of the reality of the situation, he sees their lying response to the situation uh, without having to hear what they said. Knowing their ponderings, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is made desolate, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if, this is the first of three ifs, if Satan casts out Satan, and he's divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I myself, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, your sons, by whom do they cast them out? On account of this, they themselves will be your judges. So first, their desperate explanation simply makes no sense. It collapses on itself. It's their most brilliant uh, response, and it is absolute barking, howling, gibbering nonsense. So you're saying that Satan is going around defeating every stronghold he has. Well, we've got this guy, this guy, this guy, and Satan's going around freeing all these people. Yeah, that makes perfect sense in crazyville. Uh, if he's divided against himself and he's, he's going around casting himself out, then his kingdom is divided and his kingdom cannot stand and, he's, and it's going to be at his own hand. Interesting to note that Satan has a kingdom. Interesting to note that Satan's forces are evidently united. I pause to say it's ironic to look at the professing people of God and seeing how we can't manage to do that. Even individual churches can't seem to manage to do that. I have heard of churches splitting for the most absurd reasons. Music style would be one of the deeper reasons of things that I've heard. Uh, but they just split. They can't find it a, a, within themselves to hold together around Jesus and the Word of God. And yet Satan's forces are not divided. Jesus says, because his kingdom would fall. Thank God it doesn't depend on us. I'm so glad not to be a postmillennialist. A postmillennialist believes that the church is going to bring in the kingdom of God by our efforts in the preaching of the gospel. I'd be a very sad puppy right now if I if I had my money on the church doing that. But I don't, I don't have a penny on that. I have all my money on Jesus Christ doing that. How about you? I'm looking to the son of God to bring in the kingdom of God uh, despite our best efforts and not because of them. So, but their argument just crushes itself. It falls in on itself. If that's what's happening, well then Satan's kingdom is falling and uh, praise alleluia, isn't that wonderful? And then he says, but you say your sons cast out demons. Now, you just look at me and say, well, I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Tell me, how are they doing it then? (laughs) Are you going to cast them out as being empowered by the prince of demons? So they can be your judges too. So this thing is not working out for them at all. Do you think they're going to repent because it's not working out? Remember Philip's axiom number two, which is just what we read in the Bible over and over again. No, pride makes the opposite. When we do folly, we just double down on the folly. And we dig, 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 dig deeper and we paint, 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 paint more coats. So this is the way it always is with unbelief. I've pointed this out a number of times through Scripture that this is always the case. Any position that is taken out of rebellion against God ultimately collapses on itself because it's got nothing under it. You've always got to ask the question, by what standard? You say something's right or wrong, good or bad, wise or foolish, here's the question. By what standard? And if the answer isn't by the standard of what God says, well, then there's no standard. There's no standard. It's set up on air and it will collapse, as happens here. So first of all, it is crushed for its sheer absurdity. Secondly, it is crushed by God's alternative, verses 28 and 29, he says, but if, now this is the third if. The first two ifs are for the sake of argument. Here's what you say. Well, if that's the case, let's follow this through. Boom, it collapses. Well, if this is true, let's follow this through. Boom, it collapses. But here's the third if, and this one is really the case. But if by the Spirit of God, I myself cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. Or how is someone able to enter into the house of the strong man and to seize his vessels unless first he binds the strong man and then he will completely seize his house? So this is the case. It is by the Spirit of God that he himself casts out demons. So this is why saying that what he's doing he does by the power of Beelzebul is a, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You, you may have wondered, why is this called a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? They didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit, did they? They didn't. They said He does it by the power of Beelzebub. How is that a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, it's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because He, in fact, is doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. And when they credit the work of the Spirit of God to Beelzebub, what are they doing? They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're calling His work the work of Satan. So, if by the Spirit of God I myself cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. So, is the Spirit of God uh, a big factor in Jesus' ministry? Yes, He is. Yes, He is indeed. The Gospel of Matthew has shown that. Uh, This young godly girl, Mary, suddenly turns up pregnant. And her fiancé is faced with a real dilemma. Uh, Everything I know about her says she couldn't have done this. But everything I know about biology tells me how this happened. And this story about a miracle. What do I do? Joseph has finally decided, well, he's got to divorce her, obviously. But he doesn't want to make a, a display out of her. And then an angel in a dream speaks to him. And he says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary for your wife. He wants to. But he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because what is conceived of her is what? By the Holy Spirit. Jesus' very conception in the womb of Mary was a work of the Holy Spirit. The beginning of his human existence was a work of the Holy Spirit. As God, he was eternally existent. But his manhood had a beginning, and the beginning was the result of a miracle of the Holy Spirit, creating life in Mary's womb. And then as he goes on, what's the next public thing we see him doing? He comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And after great reluctance and a short argument, John the Baptist baptizes him. And what do we see? We see the heavens opened and what? Spirit of God descending on Jesus in the form of a dove. And we read in the Gospel of John, John had been told, the way you tell the Messiah is you will see the Holy Spirit descending on him. Well, John sees the Holy Spirit descending on him. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit on Jesus who marks him as the Messiah. In fact, he's the anointing. Remember, what does Messiah mean? It means anointed one. Was he anointed with oil? No, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit of which oil was a symbol but he's anointed with the reality of the, of the Holy Spirit. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? Drives Jesus out into the wilderness. I just said, John, I said Matthew 1, Matthew 3, Matthew 4. The Spirit of God drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and holds him and gives him power through that temptation, which he succeeds in. Then comes his miraculous ministry. Do you think the Holy Spirit is not involved in that? The Holy Spirit is involved in his very existence as a human being. The Holy Spirit anoints him in the beginning of his ministry. And what did we just see in chapter 12? What did we just study? But this first servant oracle from the book of Isaiah. And what are the first words? Behold my beloved uh, whom I've picked out. I will give my spirit on him. I will place my spirit on him. The ministry of Jesus Christ was a ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had everything to do That was verse 18 of chapter 12. Everything to do with the ministry of Jesus Christ. And yet they look at that ministry and they attribute what he's done to the spirit of God. uh, I'm sorry, to um, Beelzebub to Satan, to the devil. Now look at what he says. He says, If by the Spirit of God I myself cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. Now this is an interesting word, kind of hard to translate, but I believe the idea of the word overtaken, which sometimes means come before, arrive, uh, overtake, I think the idea that, uh, uh, of what Jesus is saying here is you have ostensibly been praying for this, the kingdom of God to come, You've been saying that you want his kingdom to come. You've been saying you want Messiah to come. Well, he's here. And what are you doing? You're looking at the very works that show you who he is, and you're saying, oh, no, those are being done by the prince of darkness, by being, being, being done by Beelzebul. Uh, So the kingdom of God in that way has overtaken you. You you were supposedly looking for it, and it came up from a direction you weren't looking and caught you, and you've completely missed it. Because remember, the kingdom of God is the coming literal kingdom of God on this literal planet with his literal son literally ruling from the literal city of Jerusalem. And at that point, the kingdom of God was entirely present, this messianic kingdom, was entirely present in one person. That's how it was at hand. It was at hand in Jesus. Jesus was the presence of the kingdom of God, and that's why I don't say that the kingdom of God is present in any way now, because Jesus is not here, because Jesus, the man Jesus, the coming ruler of the kingdom, the God-man, God incarnate, his human nature is somewhere at the right hand of God, wherever that is. I don't know where that is, but I know where it isn't. It isn't Jerusalem. It isn't here. He is ascended, and his human nature is at the right hand of the Father. The kingdom of God will come when, when? When Jesus comes. That's why we pray, your kingdom come. And when we pray it, we don't mean it's kind of here, but make it more here. We're praying, your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we're praying for. Well, he is the presence of the kingdom of God, and he is the one that they are so anxious to deny and reject. The kingdom of God's overtaken you. Why? Because the Spirit of God is doing the works of the kingdom of God through me. The Spirit of God is doing the attesting works of the Messiah through me. The Spirit of God is creating my resume and presenting it to you, saying, this is the king, and you're rejecting it. That's the kingdom of God right there. And you are having no part of it. So he says, or his house, how is someone able to enter the house of the strong man to seize his vessels? Unless first he binds the strong man, then he will completely seize his house. And that's exactly what's going on here. That's the truth of it. Why is he casting out demons? Because he's stronger than Satan. That's why. He does it because Satan's no match for him. And, and that's why you never see a contest. You never see a battle. I mean, you watch a horror movie and there's always this huge battle with demons and possession and whatnot, I imagine. But there's no picture of anything like here about the closest thing to a battle you have is, is the demons say, uh, well, could we at least please go into those pigs? <laughs> but there's no question about whether they're going. Jesus says, go, they go. Why? Because he's stronger than they are. Because he's stronger than Beelzebul. Because he is the king and he will be able to put an end, a final end to the kingdom of Satan. And ultimately to the kingdom of man in rebellion against God. And he will be the last Adam, the second Adam, the last man ruling over the kingdom of God the God-man Christ Jesus, but he will because he has the power to bind the strong man, and on each occasion where he's casting out a demon, he's binding the strong man, and one day in the future, he will bind Satan himself in, in the pit. He's not now. He's still deceiving nations, obviously, but one day he will be bound and put in the pit. Why? Because Jesus is stronger than he is. I feel silly saying it. I mean, he's so much stronger than he is. It's not really hardly even a scale but he is stronger than Satan, and he will bind that man, that strong man, and note that he says Satan is a strong man. He has nothing to laugh about, nothing to joke about. He's a strong man, but Jesus is able to bind him, and that is what the Spirit of God is indicating by these works. So now... Uh, Number three comes the the scary part, Roman Roman numeral three, the blasphemy condemned. Here he talks about the blasphemy against the Spirit itself. The blasphemy condemned in verses 30 through 37. And first we see its evil is unforgivable. Its evil is unforgivable. Verses 30 through 32. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather together with me scatters. On account of this, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, neither in this age nor in the coming one. Now, those words have caused a great many people a lot of terror, and rightly so, because they are terrifying words. They're meant to be terrifying words. These Pharisees have little sinned, little sinned, little sinned themselves into a position where there is no no point of return. Now, first, let's just notice how Jesus leaves no room for compromise whatever. He who is not with me is against me. That's just as black and white as it sounds, he who is not with me is against me. There are only two possible positions, being with Jesus, being against Jesus. What had he just said? He just talked about the fact that there's a conflict between what? The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And so there are two sides, that of the kingdom of Satan and that of the kingdom of God. So he says, you are either with me or you're against me. Now, this also goes very much with the context, doesn't it? As what was the cause of all this? What was the cause of all the the Pharisees' excitement and botheration? The crowd saying what? Can this be the Messiah? But you see, that's not really a position. It's not a third position, let me say. There are no sides of for Christ. Oh, I'm, a key. I'm trying to try to be consistent about my sides. Uh, what should I say? Was, you know what? I'll just start over. Being for Christ or being against Christ and being well undecided. There is no third side, Jesus says. You're either for him or you're against him. So what that means is you're either confessing, as Peter will in a few chapters, you're the Christ, the son of the living God... Or you are not confessing that truth. And that ranges from the Pharisees saying, well, then what he's doing, he's doing by the power of Satan, ranges to people saying, I don't know, is it possible that he's the, the Son of God? That's not still being for him. That's a variety of being against him. Now, I, I know people have said, I know people say, well, I'm not against Jesus. i just you know, I'm just not decided. I just don't feel it yet. I, I just don't feel the reality of it yet. Um, I, you know, in due time, yeah, I'm very, very busy. In due time, I'll think this through. I've got school, or I've got my job, or I've got the kids have so many things going. Sometime I'll find time to really think this through. And, and I know someday, I know, I know. Someday I've really got to come to a conclusion about this. Well, my friend, that is your conclusion right now. Because the command is not think about it, what's the command? Repent. Repent. And to that, and this is what we see over and over, and this is Scripture, to that there are only two possible responses. When you are called by God to repent, you either repent or you don't repent. And there may be 500 ways of not repenting, but they're all not repenting. And Non-commitment is a commitment to non. I had a friend who decades ago who quoted his father as saying, uh, no response is a no response. I had had a while to figure that one out, but I figured out that, well, he's right. Not responding is, is responding not. I don't, I, I, by not responding, I'm saying no. You're giving me a call, I know, I hear it. I'm not going to do it though. And so Jesus is saying, indeed, there are only two options, you're either for me or you're against me. And then he says something different but related. He says, and he who does not gather together with me scatters. Now, I read that wrong for decades and, and finally came to understand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that if you gather together with him, like you're with him, you're, you're on his side. No, what he's saying is if you join him in the work of gathering God's people together, or you scatter God's people. That's what he's talking about. What's he doing? He's gathering God's people today. How's he doing that? He's going everywhere preaching the gospel and calling people to repent. He's sending out his messengers preaching and calling people to repent. He's gathering the people of God. Who's doing the other? Pharisees, who even when they hear somebody wonder whether Jesus might be the Son of God, the Messiah, immediately say, no, no, no. And Jesus is going to say in chapter 23, you don't enter the kingdom of God. And what's more, you don't allow people to enter the kingdom of God. You won't repent yourself. And if you hear anybody even beginning to think about it, you shut them down for all you're worth. So there are only two kinds of people. At heart, there are those who are with Jesus and those who are against Jesus, and the way it shows in action is if you're with Jesus, you'll be where this gospel ends. Where does this gospel end? Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I command, Gathering the people of God together from all the corners of the earth. Or, if you're not doing that, well then you're scattering. By word and or example, you are scattering. There are only two positions, and Jesus makes it very plain. And so, on account of this, he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, against the Spirit, will not be forgiven. So, um, first, there's no room for compromise. He's made that very plain in verse 30. No room for compromise. That bites the Pharisees, and it bites the vacillating crowds. And the question they needed to have answered a, a long time ago is what we see in John chapter 7, verse 31, where people say, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man? They needed to have thought about that long since and come to the right answer. And the answer is no, he won't do more because this is the Christ. There's no compromise, and there's no room for passivity. We're either gathering, like the apostles were, or we're scattering like the Pharisees and the dithering crowds were. But now in this verse, verse 31, we have, I would say, really great good news and really terrifying, horrifying news. What's the really great? You say, I didn't see that. I thought that was only really bad news. Oh, no, I think the first part's really good news. Every sin and blasphemy will forget, be forgiven. Now, I think that's, I, you know, I speak as one with a personal interest in this verse that I've committed sin and blasphemy. I don't know if I could say truthfully every, but I certainly made a good, have made a good go at it. And I look at my youth and with, with, with horror, things I said, things I did, things I thought, things I would have done if I'd had the opportunity. And I look at that with horror, and I look at these words saying that, that it can all be forgiven. There is forgiveness for all of that. I find that wonderfully good news. I tell you, what, as a sinner, you know the thing I most want to hear is, is there any way I can be forgiven? And Jesus says straight up, Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But then there is the rest of the verse not the blasphemy of the Spirit. So now, this, as I say, has troubled a great many people. What is the blasphemy of the Spirit? And they say, is it this sin? Is it that sin? Is it the other sin? Is it being hardened in sin? Is it hardening your heart against Christ? Is it finally rejecting Christ? Well, no, it's not really any of those things. It's very specific. It's it's in this context. It's a very specific thing. And what is that specific thing? Saying that what Jesus did, he did by the power of Satan. That is the blasphemy of the Spirit. You say that's a bold interpretation. No, it's not really. It's just a paraphrase of Mark chapter 3. Take a look there. That's where I get boldest, hopefully. I get boldest where the Bible just flat out says something. That's the place to get bold. Now look at how Mark paints the same incident in these same words and look at what Mark says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. You'll recognize the first part because it's in Matthew, but the second part is Mark's Holy Spirit-led commentary. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And what are the next words? Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. There it is. That's the Bible interpreting the Bible. What Jesus meant as being the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I would say is reaching the conclusion as your settled position and saying that what Jesus did, he did by the power of Satan. That's what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Reaching the settled conclusion and saying that he did what he did by the power of Satan. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, I hope you could answer that by now. Because what he did, he did, in fact, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you say that that power is actually the power of Satan, then that blasphemes the Holy Spirit. And and then I would say this more. I will probably return to these things because this is a quick tour. But I, I would say more because you wonder, well, why is that An unforgivable sin. And why is it possible to, going back to Matthew, to say something against the Son of Man and be forgiven? Does that make the Holy Spirit more important than than Jesus? Does that make God, the third person of the Trinity, more important than the second person of the Trinity? Well, of course not. Of course not. All the persons of the Trinity are equal in power and glory. But notice what he says. What does he say? Speak a word against what? The Son. You got that in your outline, verse 32. Speak a word against the Son of Man, the incarnate Christ. Says something against him, but repents of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that would probably be every convert. Who can you think of who is in this category? The Apostle Paul. He ravaged the church of God. He did the best he could to get the people to renounce Jesus. And yet he was converted. Converted how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. So so then what does this mean? Well, the Holy... Now, I've tried very hard to think of an analogy, and I don't have one I'm entirely... I guess th- this is it. This is perfect. I haven't come up with that yet, so I'll give you the best one I got today. Maybe next week I'll have a better one, but I've been working at it for years, so not certain, but suppose somebody were uh, a a uh, in a dire position. He was in jail, and he was con- condemned to die, and I say, that's not going to work. (laughs) There is no way. There is no way to do this perfectly. What I'm trying to say is somebody needs something badly, but he has taken the position that he's not going to believe anything written on paper. And so somebody comes with a prescription, or he comes with a pardon, or he comes with a word of scripture, but the guy's already said he's not going to believe anything written on paper. So. It can't reach him, right? Because he's, he's dismissed that whole class. Are you with me so far? I know it needs work, and I've been working on it, which is kind of sad. But, but, but you see, he's dismissed that whole category. If it's written on paper, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. Well, I mean, this is what you need. Uh, what's that it's written on there? Paper. I say, I've already said I don't believe in anything written on paper. What does it have to do with this? Because everything Jesus did, he did by the Holy Spirit. And all the, you read the prophecies in Isaiah, the mark of the Messiah and the kingdom of Messiah would be the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. We read about it in Acts, uh, the prophecy in Joel of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We've read it in Isaiah, that the, the servant of the Lord would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit and all of His graces. And, well, this is what the Spirit is doing. These miracles, these exorcisms, these raisings of the dead, all the things Jesus does, in addition to everything he says, in addition to the way he lives, well, that's all by the Holy Spirit. And when you take all of that and you say, oh, well, but that comes from Satan, then how will you ever be forgiven? Because the only way to be forgiven is to believe in Jesus. And the way a person believes in Jesus is by sovereign work of God, leading him to accept the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. But you've already said everything that he does really comes from Satan. So do you see? In that way, the person is poisoning the source so he can't drink from the stream. He's blaspheming the Holy Spirit who tests Jesus so he's never going to come to believe in Jesus and be forgiven. So with this position, they've taken this position and they've jumped the shark personally. And Israel with them went into the position of rejecting Jesus, at least. Not all, not all of them repeating the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But making this horrible mistake. And having made a horrible mistake, they do what people commonly do. Philip's axiom number two. Double down, keep digging, keep painting. And that's where they are today. To the point where I I said in passing to a Jewish unbelieving friend, I mentioned a friend of mine who was a Jewish Christian. She said, a what? And I said, a Jewish Christian. She says, there's no such thing. I said, what do you think the apostles were? Mexicans? Californians? I mean, what do you think they were? (laughs) But anyway, I digress. (laughs) Uh, But you see, they jumped the shark here, and you notice this brings a shift in um, in the preaching of Jesus. What has he been saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's drawn near. And what does he not say anymore after this? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that, and he begins with the next chapter, a completely different ministry, a ministry of parables and judgment, because Israel has taken its stand, and they end up formalizing it by rejecting him. So it is an eternal sin. Its evil is unforgivable, Letter B, its effect is unmasking. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree foul and its fruit foul. For by its fruit the tree is known. Offspring of vipers, how are you able to speak good things being wicked? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man out of his good treasure brings out good things, and the wicked man out of his wicked treasure brings out wicked things. Now, I think this swings in two directions. I think it has a backward reference to Jesus. He's bringing out good fruits by his works, his words, his life, and they're saying the, fruit of the tree is rotten. But how does a rotten tree bring out all this good fruit? And now he's turning that back around on them. They think they're the people of God, they think they're God's chosen ones, they're God's spokespeople. And yet, as he says in John's gospel, the one God sent, you don't believe. <laughs> you say you love God but here's his son who he sent, and you don't believe him. Their fruit was rotten. Why was their fruit rotten? the tree was rotten. And so here they they speak, their brilliant idea about what really explains Jesus' life is it's the power of Satan. And He says, you know why you're barfing out that rotten fruit? Because you are rotten trees. You are rotten trees, and there's no denying it. Because, verse 33, he calls them an offspring of vipers. Well, at this point, the tone police would come in and tell Jesus that he shouldn't speak so harshly, that this toxic masculinity of his has to come to an end. People will never listen to him. Um, Balderdash. This is Jesus cutting the truth straight, as Jesus does, and calling an offspring of vipers, an offspring of vipers, and sharply reproving them for their sin. He shows their real state, their real plight, and does not care what the tone police might say. He says that they are an offspring of vipers and that is, they're saying what they're saying because that's what fills their mouth. Verse 35, the wicked man, wicked man out of his wicked treasure brings out wicked things. And he'd said at the end of verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Its effect is unmasking. In In committing this sin, they show who they are. That's what I'm saying. That's what Matthew's saying. When they commit this sin, they show who they really are. Oh, they make their phylacteries broad, and oh, they wear fine, fine robes, and oh, they like the best seats, and they like the respectful greetings, but this is what they really are. When they call God's Son, God's Messiah, an agent of Satan, that's who they really are. Letter C, its evidence is undeniable and inescapable, I would say. Verses 36 and 37, its evidence is undeniable. But I say to you that every idle word which men will speak, they will repay concerning it an account on the day of judgment. For by your words will you be declared righteous, and by your words you will be declared unrighteous. Wait a minute, well, why are words such a big thing? This Words seem trivial, people just say stuff. But why they're such a big thing is because of verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what they say shows who they are. And it's who they are that God's going to judge. And so their words, rejecting God's son as Satan's agent, will condemn them you see. The mouth speaks from what fills the heart, and so it reveals the heart. And that's why what I finally find, uh, frankly, find terrifying about this. I would say this whole process started small, but boy, did it escalate. A grumble here, a a grudge there, a, a difference. Why do you hang with these people? And Jesus explains, and they don't listen. Why don't you fast? And Jesus explains, and they don't listen. Why do you do this on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers them, and they don't listen. And each little thing just builds, builds, builds. As I I will never tire of, of saying to you, every encounter with the Word of God is a crisis. It's a moment of judgment. And every time they've said something to Jesus and He's responded, they've hardened their hearts more and more and more, and now here they are. These would-be holy, would-be godly men are headed for a hopeless eternity in hell. Millimeter by millimeter by millimeter. Rejected word by rejected word by rejected word. And you say, boy, I'm sure glad I believe in eternal security. Well, me too. But if your idea of eternal security means that it's ever safe to reject the word of God, you misunderstand the doctrine. That's not what it means. It's never safe to reject the word of God. It's never good. It's never blessed. It's never wise. And just because you checked the card and you prayed the prayer and walked the aisle, that doesn't make it okay for us to harden our heart against God's Word. That's never safe. And that never ends well unless it ends in repentance. That's the only way it ends well. So, I'm just going to close right there this week and plead with you. Even if I'm only talking to one adult or one child or one viewer at home by the internet, let's say you have uh, believed in the testimony of the Holy Spirit to Christ, then I assure you every sin and blasphemy of yours has been forgiven. You believed in Jesus Christ. You have been fully and freely forgiven absolutely in one free act of God's grace. But if you've heard the Word of God and you heard Christ presented as the people in this church have day after day, week after week, year after year, And each time your heart just doesn't respond because you're just too busy. You're just too distracted, just too many things. You've got a thousand reasons why right now wouldn't be the right time to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I have to tell you, every reason hardens your heart. Every reason is a judgment. Every time that you don't respond to Christ, you reject Christ. So where do you think this is leading? Well, here is the ultimate place it led them. Is that a path that you want to be anywhere near? Oh, no. Oh, no. I wouldn't want that for any one of you. So I plead with you again. I plead with you again. As you hear the word of God, humble your heart. As you hear the word of God, humble your heart. Submit to the authority of God. Listen, here. Repent as needed, believe. This is the way of life. This is the way of life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for the stark, vivid, and powerful picture that's been painted for us today. We, we lament and we shake in horror at the horrible decision these men made and the horrible path their pride led them down and the horrible Eternity, they've already begun suffering. And Father, I wouldn't want that for anyone hearing for any reason to harden his or her heart to the gospel of Christ. I pray that the Spirit of God will powerfully move to bring humbling, to bring conviction of sin, to bring exaltation of Christ, to bring repentance and saving faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.